As some of you in the congregation are aware, I sent this out to a number of you this week. It came up during my sermon prep for this particular message, this message about trusting in the Lord. Spurgeon said this, he said, I once knew a good woman who was the subject of many doubts. And when I got to the bottom of her doubt, it was this. She knew she loved Christ, but she was afraid that he did not love her. Oh, I said, that is a doubt that will never trouble me, never by any possibility, because I am sure of this, that the heart is so corrupt, naturally, that to love God, that love to God never did get there without God's putting it there. You may rest quite certain that if you love God, it is a fruit, not a root. I want you to keep that in mind. We'll probably come back to it at the end of this message. As we talk about this particular set of verses in Genesis chapter 25. You will recognize these verses that they will speak about the death of Abraham. And I will begin in verse 1. Now Abraham took another wife whose name was Keturah. And she bore to him Zimran and Jokshan and Medan and Midian and Ishbak and Shuah. Now Jokshan was the father of Sheba and Dadan. And the sons of Dadan were Asherim and Latushim and Lamunim. And the sons of Midian were Ephah and Ephur and Hanak and Abedah and Adaha. All these were the sons of Keturah. And Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. But to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living, and he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of days, he was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Mechpelah, in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohor, the Hittite, facing Mamre, the field which Abraham brought, bought from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. Now it happened after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived in Beer Lahairoi. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. We can say that we will find four distinct areas of study in these particular verses. The first section would be Abraham's new family. The second would have to do with the inheritance and the gifts. The third would be the death of Abraham. And then the final part would be the blessing that is given. As we go into the new family, verses 1 through 4, a couple of things that come to mind as we read those passages. This Keturah, who we hear about here, this, uh, this one that says it is a wife, the Hebrew term is Esau for there, it, it, it covers a range of meanings. It can mean wife, it could be woman, it could be just a female. But we specifically, not only in this passage, but we also know from Chronicles, 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 32, that she was probably a concubine. And if you would turn to 1 Chronicles 
chapter 1, verse 32, it says these words, the sons of Keturah, Abraham's concubine, whom she bore were Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shuah. And the sons of Jokshan were Sheba and Dedan. Clearly, the idea is that she is not his true wife. Perhaps this creates some problems in our thinking, but I assure you it is for a purpose, and it's a purpose that is recorded here. These sons, which we don't hear much about after these passages here. This concubine, this other woman, this Esau that we have here, is not the true wife of Abraham. It is not the wife of the promise for Abraham. It is not the wife of the miraculous birth that Abraham had. But we know a couple things about this period of time. We don't excuse away what has happened, but we do know that the promises that came to Abraham follow a course that is here. We find out that after the flood, Genesis chapter 9, verse 1, we are told that they are commanded to go forth and fill the earth. That's number one. If we turn back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 2, we see the promise that it is first given to Abraham, and it says these words. I'll start in verse 1. And Yahweh said to Abraham, Go forth from your land and from your kin and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. That'll be the land of Canaan, where he's at right now. And then in verse 2, And I will make you a great nation in the singular. A great nation. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. I will make you a singular great nation. But then, flip forward, Genesis chapter 17, verse 4. Remember, as I said in weeks past, that every time we turn the page, we get more of God's redemptive story revealed to us. Every single page gives us that progressive story of God's redemption that is coming. And look at verse, uh, chapter 17, verse 4. As for me, behold, this is the Lord speaking, my covenant is with you, Abraham, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. So he will be the father of a great nation, and he will also be the father of a multitude of nations. Okay, we have two things that are happening here, sometimes not quite simultaneously, but two things that are part of the covenant that has been given to him. So we see here, we found after Sarah dies, that he has taken another wife and that she has borne him other sons. Sons that are not of the promise, but sons that have been predicted or foretold by the Lord that would happen. We should recall that the that the birth of Ishmael through, uh, through Hagar was somewhat of a reluctant situation. Now, I'll just take you back to a moment. This is faithful trust in what the Lord is doing. When Abraham and Sarah tried to have a son outside of the promise that was given, when they tried to manipulate via human terms the situation she is to hold to have a son, take my handmaid, Hagar, right, what happened? 
It's outside of what God has ordained to, to occur. That son will be blessed, but not, he is not the son of the promise. He is not the son of the promise. In the same we have here, we have these other sons. I will make you the father of many nations, multiple nations, countless nations perhaps. But these are not the sons of the promise. There is only one son of the promise, only one son of the redemptive line, only one son of that scarlet thread that runs from the beginning to the end to Christ. And that son is Isaac. These are not Isaac. The passage, the way it's laid out, specifically points to them not being Isaac. You will see an arc through this story right here that we, that we start out with these, other, with these other sons, but it ends with the blessing. The arc ends with the blessing to Isaac. So we can look at these. We can see this list of people. We find their nations throughout the scripture, but we don't hear any more about them other than in First Chronicles. We hear about them here. We have them recorded again in First Chronicles, and that's it. We'll find out about the land of Midian and Zimia and whatnot, but we don't hear any more about their lives after these 11 verses. We don't know who they marry. We don't know exactly where they live. We don't know what they do for a living. We don't know if they're kings or they're just workers. We have nothing more about their life. And you could say to yourself, well, then why are they recorded here? Well, for a couple reasons. Uh, as God's inspired in their word, it's important that they are listed here. Whether or not we know exactly the reason at the time, it doesn't matter. The fact is, it's important to God that they are listed here. We rest in Deuteronomy 29, 29. I commend this verse to everyone who is a Christ follower. That it is important to know this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Uh, it helps us. It helps us when chasing byways and mysteries and secret knowledge, all things that are not of God. It says in verse 29, Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever, that we may do all the words of the law. I can't help but say to the fact that everything you need to know about salvation and what God has done through Christ our Savior is contained in this book. There is no other knowledge that is out there that is necessary for salvation. There is no secret knowledge contained in the book that somebody only has the key to. Everything we need is right here. If we do not understand it at this point in time, we rest in the fact that God has said that there are mysteries that are beyond what we need. I've given you what is here. I've given you the answer to the problem of Genesis 3.15. That sin has come into the world and I will fix it. I have the solution for that. We think back to what Charles Spurgeon said to that woman. She was worried that Christ didn't love her, but she loved him. But the Bible says, confirms these truths, right? That salvation comes only through the Lord, not through your work. Only through the Lord, not through your work. So we see these people 
We see these people mentioned that were part of the, the relationship that Abraham had with his concubine. We don't know anything more about them. We trust that they're there for a reason, but there's nothing hidden beside that. It's just a list of what occurred after Sarah died. I mean, we're literally looking at, he lived another 37 years. 37 years that he lived. When we think about those 37 years, and perhaps I'm getting a little ahead of myself, when we think about those 37 years, think about what occurred with Abraham with regard to trusting in the promises of God. He was given the promise in the covenant, and it would be another 25 years before he would have a son. Trusting in the promise of God for 25 years, then it would be another 40 years till he would have a wife. Think about those time frames. That whole time trusting. I don't know about you, but there's times that I pray to the Lord, and if I don't have the answer in the next 15 minutes, I'm not trusting in the Lord. Right? But we're talking 25 years, then 40 years, 65 years, okay? 65 years. I want you to sit in that. That is a lifetime for many people. 65 years till the son of the promise would have a wife. And he will not even see the children of that promise. He will go to his grave trusting that God will do exactly what he says he will do. That's a challenge sometimes to us, especially in this world we live in. I went instantaneous. I want to know the answers right now. I don't sit, I don't, I don't contemplate God's word and what he's saying. I don't think about 65 years. I don't think about 25 years. Heck, I don't even think about a year. But what we see in these passages, we see Abraham, that, uh, who, who, re, who is prominently featured in the Hall of Fame of Faith in Hebrews, we see Abraham living in that trust of the promise that was given to him. Living in that trust that God is going to do what he's going to do exactly in the time frame that he's going to do it. We acknowledge that there was times during this that Abraham, who did not have the book, that he was trusting in his own understanding and God gently corrected him and his wife for that gently corrected him and his wife for that. So we come to the end of those first four, uh, first four verses that it just lists those sons that are not of the promise, but sons that will be the multitude of nations, right? We expand on those things, and it says in verse 5, as we come into the inheritance in the gift section, 5 and 6, and Abraham gave all that he had to Isaac. I'm going to stop right there all that he had to Isaac. All that he had, lands, slaves, animals, whatever. Riches that he had, we know he was a very wealthy man, all given to Isaac. Isaac is the son of the promise. He is the son of the land of Canaan where he will be for the promised land. He is the son that was miraculously born to a woman and a man who were seemingly beyond the age of having children. He was this, this one who was promised by God, who I cannot stress enough, Abraham waited 25 years for it to come to pass. 
25 years for it to come to pass. That says a couple things to me. When you wait that long, and his wife is that old, and he's that old, it can only be of God. We can think about Gideon's army, right, where it's reduced inside from tens of thousands to 300. Because you have too many, people will think that it is of you and not of me. I'm going to create the situation. God says, I will, do, I, will, I will have this situation happen so that everybody will know who I am. That will know I am the one who have done this thing, right? That's the key. Everybody knows that Isaac is the one of the promise, not the other sons. And Abraham gives all that he has to Isaac. He gives all that he has to him because he will be that one that will be the son, the father of a great nation that will be Israel. He is, and I know people don't like to hear this in our day of participation trophies, and everybody gets, everything is equal, he is the most important. In these particular passages, there is nobody more important than what it says about Isaac. Because he's the son of the promise. Now, that does not mean that he leaves these other sons to their own devices. Just like he cared for Ishmael. His first, I won't say illegitimate son, but the son that was not of the promise. He cares for them too, and it says in verse 6, but the sons of the concubines which Abraham had, Abraham gave gifts while he was still living. Notice that, gifts while he was still living, still when he was the patriarch of the family, this is important, and he sends them away. And he sent them away from his son Isaac eastward to the land of the east. We trust that this is exactly what has happened because it is God's word. We trust that he sends them away with gifts, not the inheritance, but he sends them away, not with trinkets either, not with the picture, not with a little statue of liberty, but he sends them away with true gifts out of his wealth in excess, right? He sends them away while he's alive because the inheritance comes when Abraham dies to Isaac, he sends them away, he sends them to the east, they are not the sons of the promise, he is looking forward to a time when, so there will be no issue with his son of the promise, Isaac, he sends them eastward, we have little bits and pieces in the scripture about where those lands are at, but again, I cannot stress enough that there is really no more about them individually, but he sends them away from the land of the promise, sends them away from Canaan, sends them out of that land because it's about Abraham's faith and Isaac, the son of the promise. You think, too, as I mentioned before, that Ishmael was sent away. Remember, we remember that problem that was occurring with Hagar, his wife Sarah, the way they mocked Isaac when he had been weaned. We remember that scene. There could be nothing that came up against that son, so sent them away. And also send these sons away. 
And now we arrive at verse 7. These are the days of the years of Abraham's life that he lived. 175 years, so now we see this ark that is coming forward, right? He had other children, other sons. It says that the inheritance will go to Isaac. He says he sends those other ones away. And this now we come to this almost apex point where it says, and these are the days of the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years, and Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of days, and he was gathered to his people. We have this climactic part. We have this patriarch that has lived through many things that we've seen up to this part. Problems with Pharaoh, problems with Abimelech, problems with the, with the war of the kings. We have him uh, being blessed by Melchizedek. We have the stepping outside of the promise with Hagar and having a child. We have the restoration with the son of the promise. We have a long life that he's been blessed with. In this one, Abraham has passed. This, this patriarch that is lifted up for his faith in his trust in God is now gone. Hmm. 37 years after his wife died, he passes away. It says, Esau is the, and I only give that to you because it's important to know, Esau or, Esau or Asaph is how the word's pronounced, it was gathered to his people. That's the word in Hebrew. And it's an interesting word, this gathering. It is like gathering fruit for the wine to be made. It is like gathering people or men as to an army. It is gathering them to something, but not gathering them to destruction. We look at this passage, and it says he was gathered to his people, and his people is in, not to have too much of an English lesson here, but in the Hebrew, his people is in the plural. More than one person, multiple people. So a couple things, we know the death that occurred just a couple weeks ago we talked about was Sarah. That's one person, singular. It says here he's being gathered to his people, plural. It's talking about something more in the scripture than just death. There is something more than just dry bones in the ground that this is talking about. This is, this is a, he is talking more about Abraham, not only trusting in the Lord, but there, there is more to this life than this life. That this Abraham was taken away to his people, indicating that there is something more beyond this life. This life that all that Abraham knows, all that we know currently, right? This life from beginning to end, this very, orderly life that we have, that we begin in birth and crying and we end in death and dying. Right? This life that Abraham himself has seen countless times, that he has seen with his wife passing away, 
that he has seen on the battlefield of people dying, that he has seen animals dying, that he has seen plants dying, that life is very consistent, starts with life, ends with death. But then the curious phrase, and he was gathered to his people. He was collected to his people. He was drawn into his people. This patriarch was not drawn into a grave to be dusty, dry bones. And that's all there is. The Hebrew word is nephesh, which means soul, spirit. That he was gathered in that form to his people, indicating that there were others somewhere else, not just an empty, not just a tomb that he'd be placed into. The nice thing is, is we have the whole book. We, the the people of Israel who read this, they they have this right now, right? We have the New Testament. We have that story of redemption, and we have Jesus dealing with this exact thing. If we would turn to Matthew chapter 22, And I have to say, there's so many places we can go with this scripture, right? And it's very difficult, if anybody knows me, it's very difficult to me to stay on point with some of these things because it's just, just so many things are just percolating up about this that, that we could just talk for the rest of the day about these, these particular verses. But if we turn to Matthew chapter 22 and we look at verse 23, starting in 23, we'll go to 32. Actually, we'll go to 33. It says, on that day, some Sadducees, right? So this is the day after he was talking, the time after he was talking about paying taxes to Caesar. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus and asked him a question, saying, teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother as next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up a seed for his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, having no seed, he left his wife to his brother. So also the second and the third, down to the seventh. And last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, remember, they do not believe that there is a resurrection. They're trying to trap Jesus in an impossible, logical scenario that he won't be able to answer. In 28, in the resurrection, therefore, this resurrection we don't believe in, Whose wife of the seven will she be? For they all had married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures, nor the power of God. Circle that power of God in your Bible. Circle not understanding the scriptures. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage but are like angels in heaven. Like angels in heaven, not angels. Like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, 
Have you not read what was spoken to you by God saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. We'll remember that he said these words in Exodus. God said these words in Exodus to Moses. Who, who shall I say to these people? I am. I am the God of Abraham. It does not say, I was the God of Abraham. I was the God that he worshipped, but now since he's dead, it no longer matters. But I am in the present, currently now. As it stands, they are with me in this place. I am that God. And when Abraham, back to our text, when Abraham is gathered to his people, that's what it means. He, at this point in time, with the primitive understanding of Sheol that the Hebrews would have, he is gathered with his people. He is dead physically on this earth, but he is alive spiritually for the time being until the resurrection. Just this phrase in Genesis chapter 25, and he was gathered to his people. I can't help, or at least I cannot help to think, like Paul would say in Philippians chapter 1, what great gain it was for him to be gathered in that way. What great gain occurred to him, as Paul would say, in verse 21 of Philippians chapter 1, for me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Abraham gained his reward at his death. Abraham gained what he trusted in the Lord for when he died. When he will give his inheritance to his son at his death, he is putting his full trust in the Lord that the promises will come to pass. He knows this through his experience, 25 years till the birth, another 40 years till his son takes a wife, the seeming impossibility of a wife that comes from his own bloodline that occurs back in Haran, back in Mesopotamia, that he just hears about at the death of his wife, sends his servant there, he can't help but to see great gain, that he will see the Lord when he dies. Much like Paul says here, trusting in this, I trust that when, I trust with hope, a sure hope that is sure and as sure as anything that has ever been, that when I die I will see my Lord, and that is the gain. The sin in my life is gone, and now I am with him, my creator. So when he's gathered to his people, he is also gathered to the Lord. The promises of God have seen him through to the end. As he breathes his last breath, he will cross that shore from one shore to the next. Across that golden river into the celestial city. So, it is truly... 
an amazing passage, and as Jesus rightly pointed out there, using the example from Moses, but even looking back into Genesis, that this idea of the resurrection is not hidden in the scripture. It is just veiled to those who cannot see. It exists from way back in the beginning. Abraham dies because of sin that has come into the world. Because that plan, uh, the, the plan of salvation is being shown through the scripture as it will come out in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation, his death and his resurrection and ascension into heaven. That we see in these passages here, when it says, full of days and was gathered to his people, and then it says in verse 9 of chapter 25 of Genesis, then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah, Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite facing Mamre. Of course, this is where his wife was buried too. The only piece of ground that Abraham owns in Canaan is the field with the grave in it. And it's facing Mamre where Sarah had listened at the tent door and laughed when she heard God say that she would have a child in her old age. Isaac, who means, whose name means the laughing one. This is where it is facing, looking towards that place where the promise was made, gathered to his people, gathered to his Lord, gathered to his God, gathered to his creator. Verse 10, the field which Abraham bought from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. His last breath taken in the land that would be the land of the promise. Trusting in the Lord to the end. Trusting in the promises of God that were given to him. And then in verse 11, it says these words, Now it happened after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac, and Isaac lived by Beer Lahai Roy. Beer Lahai Roy. The place, interestingly enough, where Hagar cried out to the Lord for Ishmael. The place where we see previously, last week, we see Isaac musing, meditating, thinking about the Lord when he casts his eyes up and sees Rebekah for the first time. This is where he lived, and it says God blessed his son Isaac. Abraham needs no more blessing, for Abraham has gone and gathered to his ancestors, to his God. The blessing now has passed to Isaac. Remember that the tent of Sarah is now full and Rebekah lives there now. The matriarch has passed and now a new matriarch has come. Abraham has passed and now a new patriarch has come in Isaac. And the blessings passed to Isaac just as God said they would have. I will make you a great nation. This miraculous 
son of a miraculous birth right here, and he was blessed. The promise continuing, the promise not dying off, the promise as that thread that goes from beginning to the end, that promise that goes from Genesis chapter 1 the whole way through to the end of Revelation. That this is all part of God's sovereign plan. That this is all part of God's plan of election for those that are saved by his work. God blessed his son, Isaac. He has received all the inheritance. He has received the blessing from the Lord. He is that one that the redemptive line will come through. So, as we come to the end, we think about this passage, which we could read through, and we see some names, we see a death, we see blessing, and maybe we don't, and maybe sometimes it's hard to pick out what does it mean for me as a Christ follower today. Kind of like what it meant to when Spurgeon talked to that woman who wasn't sure about her salvation. Did Jesus love me? I love him, but does Jesus love me? As Spurgeon said, it's because that you can possibly even love the Lord a little bit. It has to be from God because you will not do it on your own. It will not come naturally to you. You will naturally love God unless God has changed your heart. Notice how we see in the life of Abraham that God changed, came to him and changed him. He went from a pagan worshiper to a God worshiper. He saw the promises revealed time and time again over countless years. He trusted in the Lord. So we too must trust in the Lord. We too must trust in the Lord for that eternal life that is given to his people. Because we look around, and as I said the other week, we, as J.C. Ryle said, we would attend funerals time and time again. But at some point in time, that one funeral you attend will be the last funeral before your own. Don't miss this. Now is the time to believe in Christ Jesus as your Lord and Savior. There is no better time than now. There is no better time than right now to believe. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Abraham knew this. He saw it clearly. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. We must consider this when we think about the promises that were given to Abraham. We must consider this when we see the son of the promise, Isaac, that, is, that, that God is true, and we can trust in what he is doing we can have faithful trust in what God is doing. Even in my weakness, we can have trust in what God is doing. That because the promise comes from God, not from man. The promise comes from eternity, not from men. The promise is held in eternity, 
not from dying men. God is the one that is the holder of the promise, that is the holder of the covenant, not men. There is nothing you can do to gain that promise. It is given by God. You cannot earn that promise by your works because it is given from God. Abraham knew that. Even when he tried to come outside of the covenant, when he tried to have the child with Hagar, he was gently rebuked and said, this comes from me, not from you. So we can ask ourselves, do we see the promise as being true? Do we see the covenant that is being made as being true? Do we see the redemptive line that is shown here as being true? Do we trust in what God's plans are? Do we trust in God's plans for a day, a year, for 25 years, for 65 years? Do we trust in God's plan when we are hooked up to machines in a hospital and dying? Do we? I'm telling you right now, everybody in this, this room needs to answer that question. Because you're either answering it now, or you're going to be answering it before the judge himself. You, everybody in this room will stand before the judge. and You must have an answer. Who is Jesus? Abraham is gently rebuked when he tried to step outside the promises. He didn't have the book. Turn to Proverbs chapter three, verse Proverbs chapter three, verse five. Or, yeah, Proverbs chapter three, verse five. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Do we trust in the Lord with all our heart, or as much of our heart as we possibly can? Do we trust that his promises are true? Do we trust that the covenants will stand? Do we trust that they're eternally held in heaven? not in some drawer here on earth? Do we trust that they're written in the, heavenly, in the heavenly places, in the holy of holy places? Do we trust in what God is doing there? Do we trust Joshua chapter 21, verse 45, that all of God's promises come to pass? Do we trust that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. John chapter 14. John chapter 14, verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I truly don't need to say anything more. There is no other way to resolve the issue that we all have with regards to sin and God's wrath than Jesus. There is no Muslim way to heaven. There's no Hindu way to heaven. There is certainly no Catholic way to heaven. 
There is no Mormon way to heaven. There is the only way to heaven and rightness with God is through Christ alone and not through your works. You must trust in the Lord with all you can. With everything that you can, you must trust in him. It says in verse 7, if you have come to know me, you will know my father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all so long, and have you not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak for myself, but the Father in my abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me. Otherwise, believe me because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also, and greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Do you believe in Jesus? Will you be gathered to those believers in heaven when you die? Or are you trusting in your own works to take you there? Are you trusting in the leaky ship of your life that you can point to gifts that you've given to poor people or maybe you donated to the church? Are you, if you're trusting in that to get you to heaven, I've got news for you. He's going to say in Matthew chapter 7, I do not know you. Right? Terrifying words to hear. I'm a little bit on the high horse here, but it's so important. I desire that all of you that are sitting here know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you will be gathered into the multitudes of believers into heaven when you pass from the shore, because tomorrow you might die. In fact, in the next hour, somebody here may die. You must know Jesus, or you will be eternally damned. And you know how I know it's true? Because God's infallible and inerrant word says it's true. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the promises of God. Trust that all his promises will come true. Trust that he is the one that is sufficient for your salvation. Trust that Jesus himself bore the weight of your sin on the cross for all time. Trust that when you in him, that when you abide in him, that when you pass, that he will be the one that will meet you there and show you into the new life. That you will be gathered to that realm of heavenly believers. And to think that you can somehow earn that is foolishness because you cannot buy what has already been paid for. It's like a man giving his soon-to-be fiance a ring and then she goes to the jewelry store and and tries to pay for it again. It's already been paid for. Why would you insult me by doing that? Why would you insult Jesus by trying to work your way into heaven? It's not necessarily the note that I wanted to leave on, but it needs to sit. Do you trust in the Lord, or are you trusting in your own understanding? Do you trust in what the Lord is doing through Christ Jesus or do you trust in your own understanding? Let us pray. Glorious and heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your scripture. Thank you that we have it in translations that we can understand. Thank you for all that you do. Thank you for the humility that you give us. Thank you for 
our hearts that have been changed. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.